Welcome, listeners. We're super excited to introduce this episode's guest. We have David McGuire joining us. David is the founder and director of the Shark and Marine Conservation nonprofit Shark Stewards. A marine biologist, David is a National Geographic Explorer and a research associate at the California Academy of Sciences, where he conducts shark studies and media productions in the San Francisco Bay and throughout Southeast Asia. He's an avid filmmaker and sits on the board of the International Ocean Film Festival. Shark Stewards has introduced the first North American shark fin trade ban in California and has led several states and international movements limiting the overfishing of sharks in the shark fin trade. Welcome, David. Thanks. Great to be with you. Um, so just to start us off a little bit, can you tell us a little bit about what inspired you to work in marine conservation? Do you remember a time when you fell in love with the ocean? Yeah, about as far back as I can remember. <laughs> Fortunately, I grew up uh, in Southern California, near the beach, close enough, and started swimming and body surfing when I was like six or seven, started surfing. Um, but I think what, when I really fell in love with it, probably was through surfing, but also diving. So I started scuba diving at a pretty young age. But I, I had a marine biology class between junior high and high school and uh, realized like, wow, I could do this for a living. And also I can learn more about what I'm really passionate about. Because although my parents took us camping, we went to the desert, we went to the snow. Once I got into the ocean, it's like, no, nah, I just want to go to the beach. <laughs> so I had a really great instructor who inspired me, um, actually dedicated our new book, Sharks for Kids uh, to Dr. Siders. And continued on from there. So I went to marine biology school at UC Santa Barbara and I went to Moss Landing and I ended up working in environmental toxicology and human health and uh, worked professionally. I worked at UC Berkeley and, and then once I started voyaging and learning about the threats to the ocean and actually seeing them firsthand. So the first time I crossed the Pacific was right out of college, uh, in a, or during college, actually, in a trans-Pacific yacht race from LA to Hawaii. And we were sailing through all this plastic. And then I started delivering sailboats. I raced professionally for a couple of years and really started to see entanglements, see, seeing floating trash. And this is in the 80s, you guys. This is like ancient history now. But this uh, right around when Charles Moore of Algalita started documenting and really he dedicated himself uh, with the Algalita Foundation to raising awareness around plastic pollution, which was not a thing then, but it is now. And then Five Gyres, who we're working with and partnering now, uh, has really uh, raised awareness about this, you know, millions of tons of plastics in our ocean and in our food chain, especially microplastics. So a lot of my toxicology experience, experience uh, academically kind of now apply towards conservation. But I guess to answer your question, what really got me interested, I was on an expedition. I worked at UC Berkeley for the biology department and I was sailing through the French Polynesian archipelago called the Tuamotus. And we were scuba diving and looking at coral reefs, but we're also looking at sharks because you dive in with these healthy remote atolls. It's like, oh wow, there's a hundred sharks around you. Pretty exciting. But we would dive other islands that had no sharks. And we asked the local Palmotans, like, what's going on? Where are the sharks? And we noticed also that it eventually became documented and into several papers that uh, 
these apex predators affect the whole balance of the trophic food chain beneath them, all the way down to the coral reef. So reefs are healthier if there are apex predators, in this case, sharks. So we made a film called Shark Stewards of the Reef. I actually quit my job and I really learned about shark finning. Because when I, the answer to that question is, where are all the sharks? They were going onto these Taiwanese flag boats that were coming into Papayete. We got on board, it wasn't illegal. There were no shark finning international bands uh, and filmed. And it's like, this is a serious issue. Uh, and nothing was really going on. Wild Aid wasn't working yet in China. So I quit my job. We made Shark Stewards of the Reef, founded Shark Stewards, and started introducing shark fin bands starting here in California. So, you know, it's been a long road. It started out with education and actually working more in science and education, but then uh, kind of taking the big step and becoming an advocate for the ocean. That's really inspiring, David. You had mentioned that sharks are an apex predator and are really important for the reefs. Um, can you talk more about why we should care about sharks and um, what an apex predator means and how is that important for our marine ecosystems? Well, there's many answers of why we should care about sharks. I mean, look at this thing. They're perfect. Hundreds of millions of years of evolution to fulfill their role, whatever that ecological niche is, whether it's an apex predator or a mudsucker down at the bottom. Sharks have radiated into just about every ecological niche in the ocean, including the Greenland shark in almost freezing waters. The deepest, darkest oceans would have tens of thousands of pounds of pressure, no daylight, and, and really cold water, and yet they're out there doing their thing, fulfilling their role. So sharks are highly diverse and highly important. We tend to focus on jaws, because one, living near California, and right especially here at the Farallons, we are lucky enough to have a large aggregation but mostly because they're in the news a lot. They were Jaws in 1977. I was in high school or 1976. I remember surfing. Jaws came out and nobody was in the water. And like, this is great. There's less crowds. Uh, but it did a big disservice because people look at them as man eaters or woman eaters or kid eaters. They don't discriminate. Um, but we started killing sharks. And I saw this when I was an undergraduate at UC Santa Barbara, but white sharks were coming in they were fed to people as, uh, uh, what was it called, whitefish, fish and chips. Uh, here off the Farallons, the population was fished commercially. Also, as well as offshore, increasingly the, uh, getting killed for their fins, for shark fin soup. Um, so, you know, sharks are really important, but we start really becoming alarmed or aware when they disappear. So when we were making shark sewers to the reef, uh, we interviewed a friend of mine, Dr. Enrique Sala, who is now an ocean, a National Geographic Explorer in Residence, and he just came out with an amazing book. But he studied uh, apex predator interactions and trophic levels in, in um, different, marine food, foods, uh, different marine ecosystems. So temperate, tropical, coral reefs, subtropical. And they looked empirically at what species were in the system and what the abundance was. And he, they, they showed that you remove the top of the food chain, the apex predator, you have an impact on the next level. In the case here off California, it would be the California sea lions and the elephant seals who in turn eat halibut and salmon that people really like to eat, that in turn eat herring or sardines. So when you have more of this level, it eats more of this level, you have less of this level, you have more of the level underneath. 
all the way down in the case of a coral reef, you have less algivores or that fish that eat algae. So you have algae overgrowing the reef. So reefs that have sharks balance that trophic food level and you have a healthier, more abundant, more biomass in the ecosystem. A terrestrial analog is Yellowstone, our national park where we shot all the wolves because Yellowstone was surrounded by cow farmers or whatever you call them, ranchers. And so the wolves were killing the cows. So the ranchers actually were given license by the government to kill the wolves. Suddenly the elk completely exploded and the deer and they started eating all the grasses. They started eating the bark off the trees. They, uh, it actually impacted the entire hydrology of Yellowstone, the beavers where they dammed, the way the rivers flowed. So we spent millions of dollars to reintroduce those wolves. Now those deer are being controlled. Now those, the, there's more abundance in the trees and the grasses, but also the hydrology, the actual flow of the rivers has changed because the introduction of this apex predator, completely unforeseen. So how does that work in the ocean? Those are really big questions. Who knows? Because sharks are hard to understand. It's a lot harder to study a, a terrestrial, I mean, an ecosystem in the ocean than it is in the terrestrial environment. So these top predators are very important. They're also important because they're fewer in number. The, the higher you go up the food chain, the lower in abundance you have of that organism. That's why it's easy to overfish whales, uh, like sperm whales or the toothed whales, or sharks, or other big fish like bluefin tuna. Um, and so there's less biomass, they're easier to, to overfish. They also tend to invest more biologically into their young, not so the bluefin, they just throw out billions of uh, sperm or eggs into the system. But sharks actually, like white sharks, will nurture their young internally for almost 18 months. They give live birth to just a few young. Uh, they don't become sexually mature until they're, in this case, 15 years or so. So it's, it's uh, easier to overfish a population that has that investment in their young as well. So it kind of went off the subject of what apex, you know, why importance, but they really, they are the roof on the house. And you take the roof off, the walls fall down, the rain falls in, ruins your furniture everything kind of falls apart without the roof on the house, in this case, our apex predator. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you had mentioned a little bit about shark um, finning and overcatching. Could you talk a little bit more about what's going on throughout Asia as well as what we're seeing here in the US and in San Francisco? Well, uh, shark finning, that is catching a shark, cutting its fins off, throwing the fish back into the ocean to drown or to get eaten or to just suffocate down at the bottom. Uh, is, it's a heinous, it's a brutal practice, uh, and it's really a symptom of overfishing. Uh, it's an egregious symptom, but it is a, you know, it's a symptom. Finning uh, became more rampant because of the economics. So, you know, one of the things we're very careful about is, you know, not making this a a cultural thing or a racial thing that this is about sustainability and a practice that's not sustainable. So the act of shark finning was condemned by the United Nations in the early 2000s. Uh, it's reprehensible. It's obviously bad for the ocean. And the reason it was done is because there was no demand for shark meat. And because sharks have high urea content in their blood, they excrete their waste differently. The meat actually spoils very quickly. And so the body of a swordfish for a tuna is worth 
hundreds, if not thousands of dollars. Uh, a body of a shark might be worth dollars, but the fins are worth hundreds or thousands of dollars. So the value was really about in the fins. They keep the fins and have a boat full of fins and go back and dry them and then sell them for this delicacy eventually, ultimately mostly in China, but also here in the West, in our Chinatown in San Francisco, for this delicacy called shark fin soup, which is associated with face and honor and generosity, goes back to the Song Dynasty a thousand years ago. But really the, the problem with shark fin and shark, the demand is more about economics and the increase in wealth in China since the communist revolution became the capitalist revolution. And all of these people wanted all of these things that we as Americans have enjoyed, particularly since World War II, when our population really exploded and also our economy really exploded. So it really comes down to supply and demand. There's too much demand and not enough supply of sharks. I'd already touched on their uh, biological uh, sensitivity to harvesting. So, we are overfishing globally. 70% of the large tuna stocks are in a state of collapse, overfish or threatened. 90% of oceanic white tips are gone. Uh, most of hammerheads, they're endangered. And, and so we're really overfishing. When you start focusing on that, uh, shark finning is probably declining because there's more of a market for shark meat. We quite often don't even realize, I, I mentioned uh, they're selling great white sharks as white fish or fish and chips as the uh, spiny dogfish are. If you eat, if you eat uh, uh, fish and chips in Australia or in uh, UK or Germany or France, almost 99% of that is shark. It's not caught. Wow. It's shark. So we're eating more sharks. Uh, and, and so, you know, the estimate at one point by, that Boris Worm did in science uh, in 2015 was that we were killing 100 million sharks for their fins. It's far below that. And they're actually, the demand has decreased as well in China. And partially that's because of austerity measures implemented by Xi Jinping, uh, but also because there's more awareness among young people. Uh, and probably this COVID economy will have more impact too, because it really is, you don't eat shark fin soup every day. You know, I have a lot of Chinese friends, you know, it's like, it's, a, it's right, Vicky, you know, it's like, yeah. a, it's a, Wedding. And growing up, it's you would only see it in banquets and special events. And you're definitely right about the change in um, perspective throughout the generations because you'll see people like my grandparents who still have pride in serving that at dinners, but then people like me and my cousins, where we would reject that and try to have that difficult conversation with them and telling them like what it actually means to be serving that bowl of soup. Um, and yeah, there's definitely a change and it's, it's inspired. It's great to see that it's. Well, that's why you're part of our team. <laughs> that's really what we had to do early on because I was called a racist, uh, discriminatory against Chinese culture. And obviously in America, we had discriminated against Chinese. We brought them over as slaves, uh, as indentured servitude. The Chinese have had a lot of uh, racism in against them in America. Uh, less so now, I hope. I, ha I have a lot of Chinese friends, and obviously, you look at our website and our makeup is a great percentage are Asian because we do. Going back to your question, Natalie, uh, Southeast Asia, working in Southeast Asia uh, is in education. So we've worked in Hong Kong, uh, and and now we're really focusing on Singapore, which are the two big hubs for shark fin throughput, and trying to get young people, trying to get this nonprofit activism. At, 
but through education that sharks are more important in the ocean than in a bowl of soup. I mean, it, it, uh, I'll probably mangle it, Vicky. Yushi, uh, it's called fish wing. A lot mm -hmm. of people don't even realize they're eating shark fin sometimes. So there's a great deal of education needed and we don't need to eat the fin or in some cases, I don't want to really get into the whole fin sustainability fishery thing, but if we can ever manage a shark fishery well, which most countries don't and can't, maybe there is some method of people eating a sustainable dish. But right now it's, it's a wild, wild west. It's totally uncontrolled. Endangered species are getting harvested. And it's really about, I mean, they're the blood diamonds of the ocean, really. They're so valuable. They're easy to smuggle. Uh, there was just a bus yesterday uh, in Peru that sharks that had been harvested in Ecuador, the bodies came in, but there were no fins. So those fins bring a lot of money. And, and if that's the case, you know, greedy people cross all cultures. <laughs> you know, bad people, unfortunately, cross all cultures. And people who want to make a quick buck will take advantage of a system. So I think it's important for us, the consumers, and especially youth, to be aware of how important these are, not just because they're sharks or it's cruel, but because of what we talked about, uh, because of their, their importance for the balance and the health of the ocean, because all cultures, all people, and the whole future relies on a healthy ocean. Mm -hmm. And you talked about um, overfishing and how there's been a decreasing demand. Is that um, affected by the establishment of more marine protected areas in the recent years? Um, can you also talk about what marine protected areas are? Um, why do we need them? And what do they mean for our future? Well, I think there's a decline in, over, decline in fishing because there's a decline in fish. There is increased demand and there's something called catch per unit effort. It's how we measure how effective we are fishing. And it's also used by NOAA, National Oceanographic Atmospheric Administration, our national marine fisheries in the United States, of how that stock is faring, if you will. So just take a thresher shark population. If you catch fewer and you have more boats out there, your catch per unit effort has increased dramatically. That means that population is declining. Uh, we're putting more boats out there. In particular, the Chinese are putting these large long line vessels that are transshipping to bigger boats so they can fish longer, fish uh, more days. Uh, so we're fishing harder and catching less big fish because there are less big fish to catch. So the global fish catch is actually for the first time in a few years, I think it was a few years ago, it was up, 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 and then there's a decline. Mariculture has increased and it's actually surpassed. So fish, uh, uh, farm fish is increasing wild caught fish, uh, which is not a good sign for the ocean really. And there are other implicit uh, problems with fish farming as well as it can be done right in many cases. Uh, marine protected areas are a way to give refuge or sanctuary for fish. And we see in California, we're now 16% of our coastal ocean and our state waters are protected under this network of marine reserves, no take reserves or no fishing and marine conservation areas. We're already seeing in some cases off Santa Barbara, 400% increase in biomass, uh, a couple hundred percent uh, growth rates increase. Marketable species have uh, escalated and actually improved fisheries on the margins of the marine protected areas. So on a small scale, uh, these are very effective. In California, we're also studying them very effectively scientifically, and they've actually been designed as a network 
that are interconnected by currents. So if a big fish, for example, needs a big area, like a gray white shark needs almost a half, you know, a third of the ocean. So they're not protected. They're protected in our sanctuary. They're protected under fisheries law. But once they go out beyond the 200 mile EEZ or economic exclusive zone, that's the wild, wild west. They're wide open to get caught. Um, so the size really matters, but these marine protected areas around the world are improving the state of the health of the ocean and the habitat. So it's not just the fish, it's the habitat they live in, which in turn also uh, provides resilience. Uh, there's faster recovery in Dias, for example. In 2015, we had the blob off of the west coast of the Northeast Pacific, or the west coast of North America in the Northeast Pacific. This warm sea surface temperature anomaly, uh, which lasted into 2016, caused huge die-offs because it, there was a decline in upwelling, decline in uh, um, productivity at the base of the food chain, and that impacted the birds and the uh, marine mammals up on top of the food chain, as well as some of the sharks and whales. So these big sea surface temperature or localized events can have a dramatic local effect or even uh, regional impact. But what we found is, for example, in Anacapa, where the macrocystis, the giant kelp died off because of the warm water, it actually recovered more quickly because there are predators there to eat the sea urchins as we're seeing here off the north coast with the bull kelp, uh, this imbalance. There's no predators, so these other apex predators, in this case the sea urchins, are eating the sporlings for the bull kelp. In Southern California, the annual macrocystis actually recovered, was able to grow back more quickly. There was an invasive sargassum that overgrew the rest of the area. It actually got crowded out, shaded out. And so the MPAs actually recovered more quickly, had a healthier ecosystem overall from something that is really difficult to control in warm sea surface temperatures. And this is something we know we're going to be experiencing with global warming in the future. Currently, we only have around 6% of our global ocean in truly protected areas. So the goal is to protect 30% by 2030. We have a long way to go. But fortunately in the US, we have our national marine sanctuaries, which allows some fishing, but is managed, uh, protects whales, protects uh, from mining, or protects from other impacts such as oil exploration. Uh, we have our marine national monuments like the Papahanaumokuakea, which is the second largest marine protected area in the world uh, off the Northwest Hawaiian Islands, which does refuge, does make refuge for large migratory sharks like tiger sharks that don't stick around in one small area definitely benefits the reef sharks and some of the other large species. So if we're gonna protect the ocean, we need to set aside areas like we have on the land, like in our national park system or our wilderness areas, because this will not only benefit us through recreation, through economic uh, uh, opportunities, through dive tourism, uh, fishing, recreational fishing, but also it will benefit the world because we rely on the oceans for well over half of our oxygen. And a sick ocean, it's going to mean a sick planet. Um, David, can you talk a little bit about hope spots while we're talking about marine protected areas and um, your partnership with Sylvia Earle? Well, uh, I hope most people know who Sylvia Earle is. I grew up with her, not literally, uh, but that golden rectangle, the National Geographic, I read it religiously. And she was the first woman in the deep sea. She's a marine biologist, a scientist, the first woman to head NOAA, 
uh, amazing scientist, amazing role model for girls and young women and young men. Uh, I've, I tell her every time she's the first woman I ever fell in love with and I still love her. Um, she's still <laughs> out there. She's an advocate. She's a National Geographic Explorer in Residence. And she's a huge influencer at the United Nations level, uh, at, at uh, international diplomacy. And she founded Mission Blue, which is a nonprofit. And she created these, prod, uh, these, these spots called Hope Spots. And I think it was, I think it was a United Nations or it was a TED, TED Talk, TED Talk afterward, but United Nations uh, uh, address. And she said, we have to start setting these areas aside that we care about to protect not only the, the animals, the whales, the birds, the, the sharks, but the whole habitat. So I'm not sure how many there are. There are at least 70. The San Francisco Bay is one. Uh, we've been, there's one off the, the Farallons is a hope spot, but essentially what they are, are areas where local stakeholders uh, get together with government, with fishermen, divers, uh, educators, and they say, you know what, this is an important place to protect. We love it. We want to protect it. We need to take measurements. We're going to put it down on paper. We're going to really try to put, apply pressure to our governments or whoever the governing bodies are and save these beautiful places. So the, the most recent one, I'm not sure if it was the most recent, ours might've been the most recent. Uh, so we worked with uh, Dr. Earl and stakeholders in Timor-Leste, which is an island nation that used to be part of East, East Timor with Indonesia. It's now an independent nation, has some of the most incredible coral reefs I've ever seen. Uh, it's dive tourism is one of the really significant parts of the economy there. It's a very poor country. Uh, it has more species of fish that have ever been described on, in one place in the whole world. It has the highest marine biodiversity and they desperately need people to come and protect it. It has a network of marine protected areas, but these people are hungry. And now without tourism, we're very concerned that there's, a, we know there's more fishing in marine protected areas in some cases through necessity. So these spots of hope really are places to rally around these blue, these blue treasures on our planet that we can appreciate, we can photograph it, we can dive in it, and we can share it and show people how incredible this ocean planet really is that we have. And we do have the ability to protect it. Yeah, and some of these films you've made at, um, at these hope spots um, and these amazing places you've traveled are really incredible. Why do you enjoy filmmaking, David? Um, how is it effective in communicating ocean conservation messages? Well, you know, I consider myself an educator. I do teach, but I really love uh, to share how awesome the ocean is. And I was inspired by National Geographic and ended up getting involved with them. Uh, Jacques Cousteau, like the first, like you look at them now, they're totally dated and goofy. Like don't jump on a whale or don't ride a shark or don't do these stupid things that they did. But they didn't know any better. And it was also made for TV. But it really inspired me as a kid uh, to study marine biology. So we can reach more people through media, and especially now with digital media. I mean, the power of, especially like Instagram, right, or TikTok, there are more young people that could be reached through a dance video than I could reach in a classroom, that's for sure, right? <laughs> so, you know, we use Instagram, we use Facebook. Um, I don't do TikTok, I'm probably too old. <laughs> but, um, but I think that, you know, the power of storytelling uh, inspires people rather than don't do this or we have to make a law, all of these other sort of negative connotations. Don't eat shark fin soup. You know, it's all this kind of 
top down or it's like, no, get in the water, go dive and look how beautiful it is. Like I took a picture of this shark without a cage. I just went in. It's like, Oh my God, he's this far away. So beautiful. Or she, I should say no class. <laughs> um, you know, just, just these, it, the ocean's so re remarkable, so beautiful. And so if you can tell a story through film or photography or writing, you can reach a much bigger audience. And I think that's really important. And, and not just in English, in all languages. So one of the things that Shark Stewards has really been focusing on is I work with Chinese students. And we've been producing media in Chinese. And we're working on a, a study right now with a young Chinese uh, young man who we're doing a fish study on mercury uh, in Chinatown, San Francisco, and in Hong Kong. And we're going to do a comparison. And it will be told in Chinese to reach the Chinese audience because the Chinese or Chinese Americans are among the highest at risk to mercury poisoning because they eat more fish than other demographics. And yet you don't see a lot of material reaching that audience about health and awareness, even though Chinese are super involved with health and natural products and traditional Chinese medicine. And for thousands of thousands of years, there's been a lot of focus. Uh, there's still like the average layperson thinks fish is really healthy. Well, in some cases it is, but in some cases, for example, like shark, shark fin, swordfish, tuna, tilefish, they're very high in mercury and they can have serious negative health effects. So that's really what we try to focus on. I did one last year with a Chinese student in Borneo. She didn't really like the ocean. She liked sun bears. So we made a film that showed in, is showing in film festivals in Asia in Chinese on sun bears because bear bile is actually used in traditional Chinese medicine and it's killing a lot of uh, wild bears uh, in Southeast Asia and in Borneo. So I think it's really important not only to reach our audience, but a global audience, and particularly in the context of their culture, which I try to do by showing the kids in front of the camera, I'm behind it. Uh, and, tr and I think it communicates to that audience, that demographic better. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so with Shark Stewards, are you guys doing any um, in-person events? Obviously not right now with COVID, but can you talk a little bit more about your organization and um, what you guys have been doing for the community in the Bay Area? Well, I think I'm at both of you guys at outreach events. <laughs> I love to proselytize about sharks. Uh, so yeah, nobody's called me shy. And we created these events called Sharktoberfest. And, uh, and it was really to celebrate the return of the great white shark to our sanctuary. So we know from science, the sharks here off of our Farallon Islands that are there in full right now, feeding on those nice fat elephant seals, actually migrate 2,500 miles west every year, the big adults like this one. And Guadalupe is a sister population. Uh, we know this through satellite tagging, but this is a fairly recent data set and knowledge. So one of the things we wanted to do was let's celebrate the return of the white sharks. Let's not jaws. They're important for the health of the ecosystem. Let's educate surfers. Let's educate swimmers or fishermen in particular who are paranoid. Uh, kayak fishermen or fishermen in boats have this negative uh, connotation of white sharks sometimes. And, you know, I think we're lucky. Like, this is so cool. And we have all of these other species of sharks that live in the San Francisco Bay in our sanctuary. So it's not just white sharks, it's all sharks and their importance to the ecosystem. So we really did this to actually 
support the California shark fin ban. The Hawaii shark fin ban was also going on, uh, the movement, the introduction of the law. And we wanted to get people to rally behind it, to support sharks, get them on a bus, go to Sacramento, say this is not a thing about racism, this is not about cultural, uh, this is about the importance of sharks to our ecosystems, not just white sharks. So education is really important. No, I'm not doing any live events. Uh, we're doing all live casts. We just did our Sharktoberfest today with the National Marine Sanctuary. It's on YouTube, really fun. We actually had somebody from Florida, uh, Jasmine Graham with uh, Minorities in Shark Science. Uh, we had a researcher, um, Derek, what's Derek's last name with Noah, uh, in, in Hawaii. So we had, we're, we're bringing people in that normally we'd have a panel discussion. It would be local people or people who wanted to come to us. Our Ocean Film Festival, same thing. So this month we're doing a huge event uh, online. I think we're at seven with Blue Endeavors, who, which are our nonprofit and education partners and conservation partners uh, based here in the Bay and in Washington. We'll be going to uh, Socorro Island next year to study manta rays and bring students. Vicki will be with us. Yeah. Please, COVID, you uh, <laughs> Natalie, I hope. Uh, so Hopefully. But also education. Uh, but we're also doing these live casts now. So we're doing an expedition. I'm going on an expedition to uh, introduce the world or really show them firsthand what's happening during COVID about poaching. Uh, there is a lot of IUU or illegal, unreported, and unregulated fishing. Somewhere around 20%, it's estimated, of fish caught are IUU. Once they're in the food chain, just like sharks, in the, meaning in the, the food marketing chain, distribution chain, you don't know generally if that fish was illegally caught or if it was legally caught. And, and the negative impacts of bycatch or other bykill. Um, so we're going to go down to Mexico, Central America, visit some of these marine protected areas, some of these aggregation areas for sharks, and document fishing in and around it, and also get in the water and film sharks and storytell and share the ocean uh, on this adventure. Because every summer I work in Asia with our marine conservation areas in Malaysia and Indonesia, can't go. Can't go to Singapore to work on our shark fin trade work uh, and education. Can't go to China where we were going to have our International Ocean Film Festival for the first time ever. Hopefully in 2021, I can get on a plane again. But right now, being in California, being American, they're saying, no way, we don't want you because our cases of COVID. So we're going to get on a boat, self-quarantine, tell our stories. We're going to do an Instagram Live tomorrow uh, from the Farallons and test this technology and, and just try to you know do stories, uh, do a film ultimately that will be on our Ocean Film Festival next year and online to just keep out there advocating, but also telling these stories of adventure and wonder. Because life is an adventure. You got to be part of that adventure. Yeah. And we'll make sure to have your Instagram and information on our website so people can follow you along in your exciting expedition of about three months. Um, so how can our listeners get involved with Shark Stewards and your conservation work? Well, we are, a, we like to say Kelp Roots organization. <laughs> we're part of the Earth Island Institute based in Berkeley, right across from campus. Uh, we're, we're, we have a big footprint or fin print across <laughs> the planet. Uh, we have, we're kind of a chapter format. So we actually have a group in China, a, a group in Singapore, 
uh, Malaysia and Indonesia, but also in Florida, which is very important. The, the Florida shark fin ban just was uh, signed into law, but there's still a lot of overfishing. So we work with divers primarily, but also surfers and students like you guys. I mean, I love you guys. I love to be around you. My alma mater at Cal, I used to work there. And it's so fun that the Ocean Society that was founded when I was there is still going. Uh, so online education, uh, blogs, especially during Sharktober, writing an article, sharing our social media at sharkstewards.org, going to our petitions. We have a petition against eBay to ban the sale of shark jaws and swordfish, uh, not swordfish, sorry, sawfish rostrum. These are species that are protected under CITES, the Convention of International Trade of Endangered Species. It is illegal, and yet they're being sold without permits. Uh, there are other campaigns to support the Federal Shark Fin Trade Elimination Act, which is currently in Congress. We're trying to do a final push. Cory Booker's a sponsor. It's got to get read through committee. Please, maybe they could do something good. Maybe they could do something in the Senate. Hopefully not uh, put another Supreme Court justice in this term. Uh, so there's a lot people can do during COVID to help support sharks. Um, we have a link of how you can help on our website at sharkstewards.org. But basically just get out there, love a shark, don't eat unsustainable fish, reduce your use of plastic is what we tell kids. Everybody knows this, right? Use less plastic or if you see plastic, pick it up because that's, that's the scourge of the planet. It's the scourge of the ocean and it's something that everybody in the world almost is contributing to. Mm -hmm. So do a beach well, <laughs> well, David, thank you so much. Our final question for you is, what is something that makes you hopeful for our future? Well, um, you know, 11 years of annual shark celebration, Sharktoberfest, it was hard. It was like pulling shark teeth to get people to participate. Uh, our Ocean Film Festival, I pitched a shark block only and that my film was in to just like start to advocate. We had a panel with Scott Anderson, uh, with PR Point Race Bird Observatory, who worked at the Farallons. We had Maria Brown, we had Dr. John McCosker. Incredible panel discussion. One of our, uh, the board, when I proposed it said, who's gonna just watch films about sharks? That's the stupidest thing I ever heard. <laughs> I'm like, never heard of Shark Week? The most popular watch shark program. It's one of the most popular sh uh, shark programs in the International Ocean Film Festival every year. It sells out, you know, in the theater, it's very popular. Uh, so um, that inspires me, that more people care about sharks, that sharks are more valuable alive than dead, that shark tourism is growing globally. It's, a, it's a, probably approaching a billion dollar industry. They bring in more money than fisheries do in many of these countries like Palau or even uh, some of the areas in Indonesia where we're working. So that's, that's hopeful. And that these sharks right here that were disappearing when I was a young man, uh, are, re are returning and recovering. So we're seeing more white sharks off our coast because we protected them in our state, we protected them nationally, and they're protected under CITES internationally. They're still at risk. There are only a few thousand in the whole population, uh, but we're seeing that population return. It's uh, recovering, which in turn helps the, 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 our whole ecosystem. So that's hopeful. And it's hopeful talking to guy you guys to students who are inspired, really smart. Like Vicky, you could be a doctor. Natalie, you could go work for some whatever big tech think tank. 
doing data and making a lot of money, but you care about the ocean, you care about the planet. That inspires me. Well, thank you so much, David. That's really kind that you said that we inspire you too. And hopefully you, um, your story can inspire more people to get involved in ocean conservation and help save our drowning oceans. <laughs> I think so with you guys, there's hope. <laughs> Yes. Well, thank you so much for being on our podcast today, David. Um, you guys can find all of our information on our website and we'll link Shark Stewart's Instagram along with their website. So thanks so much for listening. Tune in next week. Great. Thank you. Bye. Yes.